redefining being a multi-hyphenate for artistic control and representation. Isabel Sandoval made her television debut, directing the sixth episode for the new FX limited series, Under the Banner of Heaven, based on the New York Times bestseller by John Krakauer. Isabel Sandoval is a Filipino filmmaker who made history with the world premiere of Lingua Franca at the 2019 Venice International Film Festival. In honor of her achievements with the film, Sandoval was nominated for the John Cassavetes Award at the 2021 Film Independent Spirit Awards. Her early film work debuted last summer on the Criterion Channel platform, displaying her growth and evolution as a creator, able to embrace new mediums. Welcome to the creative process. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so thrilled to be here. So we've really been enjoying Under the Banner of Heaven, of course, Lingua Franca and your other works. And even though the setting is so different, I can really see the through line. But what's interesting for me is to see Under the Banner of Heaven as experience a community, a faith that I had no experience of, but you have this very compassionate camera work. You directed the penultimate episode and there's a beautiful line. It runs throughout it, but it's about holding on to faith and the lies that we tell those who we love in order for them to feel connection to us. It's frightening when you've been told your whole life that God will guide you. It's frightening being alone with your own mind. What was your way into that scene? You know, it's interesting because before coming on board under the banner of heaven, you know, I had very little knowledge of Mormonism, but having read the script by Academy Award winning screenwriter Dustin Lance Black, who's also the showrunner for the show. You know, I resonated deeply with Jeff Pyrie when it comes to his growing ambivalence and his crisis of faith. And that the more he learned about the gruesome, the grisly history of the founding Mormonism and also about the case that he was investigating, the more disillusioned and disenchanted he was becoming. And that resonated with me because I was raised Catholic in the Philippines. That way. I was born and uh, grew up in the Philippines, which is the most predominantly Catholic country in Asia. In fact, 95% of Filipinos are Roman Catholic. But you know, as I grew older and I went, actually went to Catholic uh, schools and universities from kindergarten until college, and then the more I learned about you know, the history of the Catholic Church and the atrocities and just the injustices that it's committed, especially in the name of colonial and imperialist pursuits in the Middle Ages, the more I questioned its just its control over me and my life, and the more I became critical of it. Not not primarily as a system of belief or as a faith, but as an institution that's flawed and fallible. And that was my way in to Under the Banner of Heaven, where characters like Jeff Pyrie, played magnificently by Andrew Garfield, find themselves realizing whether and questioning whether their religion is getting in the way of their morality. Uh, and your quiet camera work as well. There's no judgment. It allows us to understand the things that we might struggle with. And I don't know what your faith is today. I mean, the path of your faith. I'm not especially religious, but I would like to think that I'm spiritual and that 
I trust in the existence and the presence of higher power. You know, I'm not trying to define that higher power in terms of what it is, but that I also believe in goodness and compassion and, and hope as a way to live our lives and as a way to move forward, especially at a time and a place, especially right now in America, where we're beset with all kinds of violence and, and danger and just negativity amidst all the mass shootings and speaking personally, and also just being part of a community of minorities, you know, being Asian American, uh, being queer, but that I fundamentally believe that there is goodness in people. And that is what I want to see or I attempt to explore and look at with my camera when I'm working on my art, whether in film or in TV. Going to lingua franca, again, it's not preaching, it's just allowing a sense of acceptance. How did you chart that visual path? And also you work with uh, a lot of uh, Filipino producers and it's not just yourself, it's a whole community that you brought sure. into that. Yeah, with lingua franca, I think the, the radical idea in centering a film about this minority character, a trans Filipina immigrant, I think a lot of films or media that depict or feature that kind of character almost always emphasizes their, the trauma, you know, and just the, their marginalization or being subjected to all kinds of prejudice and discrimination. But what I set out to do in Lingua Franca is to bring out and to depict their, you know, her sense of selfhood and agency first, especially in the first um, few sequences of the film by just observing her, you know, being and going about her daily morning rituals and routines as a caregiver to this elderly Russian lady. And I think by training my camera at those rituals, which seem mundane and routine, I'm essentially saying as a filmmaker that this is a person, a woman, and her, you know, daily rituals that are worth chronicling, that are worth paying attention to. And I think just by seeing this woman go about her, her daily tasks, I think it's already dignifying that life and that perspective that it's important that it, and that it matters. And although... It does it occur in a fraught milieu in a fraught setting. I mean, it's Trump's America. And this woman, Olivia, is an undocumented immigrant who lives under the constant threat of arrest and deportation. I also look at those moments of grace and sensuality and hope in that she might be dealing with all these things and you know, these leading this precarious existence, but she's also resilient. She's also strong. She's also sensual. And by portraying this character with that much depth and dimension and complexity, I think that's my way of truly giving her a sense of dignity and self-hunt. 
Yes. And we all, whatever background we come from, I feel like in this and also in Under the Banner of Heaven, we discover something private about ourselves in watching the, the slowness and the quietness unfold. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of that unfolding process, tell us some of your creative conversations that you may have had with Dustin Ladsback or your other collaborators, Anna Culp, or you know, how did you chart those visual paths and bring in the, the whole atmosphere? I feel, first, I just want to say I feel incredibly privileged to have worked with Dustin Lance Black, you know, the, the showrunner of Banner and who also is an Academy Award winning screenwriter for Milk. You know, I admittedly, this is my first episodic television that I directed and I came on board, especially knowing the, the pedigree um, and the cachet of everyone involved from Lance to Anna Culp to Andrew Garfield, Samuel Worthington. I was honestly quite intimidated and daunted at first, but all those you know, trepidations went away the day I set foot on set with Lance, who was a genuine pleasure to work with and who not only, I didn't actually think of him as a boss, but more like an artistic collaborator and a mentor and a friend. He was so supportive and he wanted to make sure that you know, he was creating the right environment for me to be as creative and as um, in control of the medium as I can be. And sorry, the question was, I was just raving about Lance and the collaborators. Your whole research process and the whole team, you're going to the text of John Krakauer. Some people like to be more mysterious and, and not have it influence their imagination. Yeah, I mostly stuck with the scripts for the series because, you know, one major change, which I also think that really made the, the story stronger as an adaptation for television is introducing this fictional character of Jeb Pyrie who is the central detective of investigating the Lafferty murder and who really embodies this, this ambivalence and this crisis of faith that becomes the whole dramatic beat of, and heartbeat of Under the Banner of Heaven. And you're reading through the scripts and, you know, talking to Lens about the intention and the vision for the scenes I also thought I was very elated to have been given the opportunity to direct this episode in particular because I think it really is, especially in a true crime series that's very propulsive and very much driven by its procedural elements, this episode happens to be the most introspective and, and soulful and I think quiet of the entire series, which actually makes it a perfect match for my sensibilities as a director. And yeah, just talking to him about his intentions and striking the delicate balance between making sure that I translate what he had in, he had in mind visually and dramatically in the episode, but also being able to incorporate touches and flourishes from my style that make it distinctly and singularly mine. And I'd like to think I pulled it off, of course, with Lance's guidance and, and mentorship, as well as, you know, the cinematography of Toby Rabbit, Rabbit High. And he made that my episode 
truly feel haunting and hypnotic, you know, in, in the best sense. Yes, there's truly some uh, wonderful tender moments between a mother and son. And I don't know, do you draw on your own personal feelings when you're making such tender moments? Certainly. I mean, I'd have to say that the moment, the scenes between Pyrie and his mother in my episode are very much because of the extraordinary chemistry between Andrew Garfield and Sandra Seacat, who is actually his longtime friend and an acting teacher. Sandra Seacat is a legend in the industry and has been a leading acting teacher and theorist for many years. And Andrew learned from her. And yeah, I think besides Andrew's chemistry with Gil Birmingham plays Bill Taba, I think whenever he and uh, Sandra Seacat are in, in a scene together, they just light up. And they have this very natural, effortless chemistry together. And you know, in terms of my own touch with those scenes, I feel like I've, I have an affinity and that sensitivity towards characters who are looking after someone who might be dependent on them or might be vulnerable. And in Ligo Franca, there is a similar dynamic between the caregiver that I play and um, the elderly Russian Jewish lady who was played by um, the late great Lynn Cohen. And that's also very much apparent here. In my first feature, Senorita, I play a foster mother to an 11-year-old kid to the son of my character's friend. So yeah, there's always that dynamic of looking after and taking care of someone else within my work. Isabel, uh, good morning. It's an honor. Switching gears a little bit, has there ever been a motivation of sorts coming through your work or your projects to kind of prove that as a Filipino artist, you belong in this industry, in this space, not just through projects that craft authentic representation of your community, but also through experiences that are, are different from your own? Yeah, certainly, Andy. And that's why I I'm just so thrilled that my first TV project was Under the Banner of Heaven with a world and a set of characters that's just radically different from my own background. And, you know, there's been a lot of conversation and discourse about what rep representation diversity means and how it's important. And, you know, of course, one of the most important points is that we are able to tell the stories about our own experiences in our own communities. But I think especially for artists who are minorities or come from a minority background, I think there's also a unique and singular type of sensitivity and empathy that you bring to characters who are different from yourselves. And, you know, I'd like to think that I gave the Mormon characters in Under the Banner of Heaven justice. And yeah, I really sought out to prove that not only are we gifted and capable of telling stories from our own perspective, but about lives and experiences that are very much different from our own. That's incredible. And as a Filipino, it always brings me so much joy and so much pride to see other Filipinos succeed or excel in different fields. In terms of working on other projects, they're, they're different uh, in terms of your personal connections. How does your 
Filipino upbringing or cultural upbringing continue to inform your work in, in different ways? It's interesting because I've lived in the U.S. for over 15 years now. But for my first two features, even though I developed them in, here in the U.S., they were still set in the Philippines about Filipino characters. I actually flew back home there, Senorita Naparishon, which is about the Marcos regime in the 70s. And with Lingo Franca, although it's set in the U.S., it still has a Filipino character. And actually, the next movie that I'm working on, it's called Tropical Gothic. And we're going to make an announcement about our producer very soon is set during the early years of the Spanish colonial regime in the Philippines in the 16th century. So as they say, you can, you may take um, the Philippine or the Philippine out of the Philippines, but you may not always be able to take the Philippines out of the Philippines. And you know what, to be quite honest, I have a pretty complicated and ambivalent relationship with our home country as well. You know, over 10 years ago, there was a law that was passed prohibiting trans people from updating their name gender marker on our passport. Um, and at that time, you know, the Philippines felt like less like a home to me because of that. In fact, when I, last time I flew back home, a few months before the pandemic hit, it was late 2019 for the Philippine Prima Lingo Franca, that was the first time in years since I transitioned. And I've been living in the U.S. all the time that I felt self-conscious about being trans. And that's not something that ever really happened to me in the U.S. And so, you know, I think I'm working through my, my complicated and conflicted relationship with our home country through my work. That's what I can say about it. I mean, I am the person that I am today because of my upbringing, you know. My mom raised me by herself in the Philippines, growing up Catholic, going to the schools that I did and the friendships that I made. And I would always be grateful to all that because of where I am now. Touching on Aparishan uh, really quickly, what is it about, you know, faith and political turbulence, and especially relevant now with, with the results of the elections, but what is it? about the message that you wanted to share or that you wanted people to know about the Philippines in terms of how faith and political turbulence kind of interconnect? Um, I think it's not necessarily, I wasn't really setting out to say any major commentary about the Philippines, but it, what I did with Senorita Aparicion and Lingo Franca uh, thematically is to try to portray women who might be at, in certain ways, disempowered or marginalized in some way and it's, it might be odd to think of Filipino nuns as marginalized but when it comes to films and literature that portray that regime the martial law before the 1986 Ed's revolution you know where the nuns actually led the street protests that eventually led to our ouster of Marcus in 1986 there's very little written or are depicted about these nuns. And so it's about you know, these women who are forced to confront or grapple with very important personal decisions in a milieu or a setting that is fraught, you know, socially and politically. There's a lot of tension and that their personal decisions are influenced and very much affected by the forces the societal forces around them that's as true in apparition as it is in Lingua Franca and that 
you know, this is a trans woman who's trying to get a green card and find herself romantically involved with someone who might not be aware that she's trans in, in an environment and at a time where there's a lot of, there's a real threat of arrest and deportation for someone like Curves and Documented. Yeah. You touch on the violence in American society against trans, the Asian hate occurrences. We always try to understand why. It, it seems a very violent society and we couldn't understand why. Yeah, I think it's, you know, having grown up in the Philippines, which we tend to say is a third world country, but I feel like at a young age, and I can talk about this aspect of my parents because I did grow up in the Philippines. I feel like we are, because of our social relationships, either through family and friends, we are encouraged you know, to talk about the issues and the problems, the personal problems that we're dealing with. And so I think there's more of an emotional support and structure to process and articulate the problems that we're dealing with. Um, growing up, which is, I think, quite different from what's happening in the U.S. I feel like at a very young age, and again, this is very subjective, this is my personal opinion, and what I've, what I've noticed is that there is a tendency to diagnose and just pathologize certain phases behaviorally and emotionally that kids deal with when they're having trouble adjusting to their environment school, it's almost always the diagnosis of condition, you know, whether it's ADHD or something else. And when it's diagnosed as something, the most immediate. And so I think there's a lot less genuine emotional development and support for people, you know, at a young age to be able to deal with the problems and to process them on their own or with their friends and deal with them responsibly and maturely and not lash out. And I'm, I'm speaking about, you know, those formative years. It's because a lot of the mass shootings, and this has been just weighing on my mind these past few weeks, were, were instigated by people, young people, you know, people who are barely out of their teens, they're what, 17, 18 years old. And I think that is what really needs to be addressed. Of course, gun control as well, but having come from um, a psychology background, um, I also think it's very important that children, young children are given the right support system and structure to be able to deal with the stresses and the hardships of their young lives and to be able to come out of it and blossom as well-adjusted and healthy physically and emotionally young adults, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yes, completely. I think in America, of course, it depends on maybe if you're in an immigrant family where there may be more multi-generational. But what I noticed in just in visiting the Philippines, it's not just your multi-generational family, all the aunties, all the uncles, all the this whole thing. And I feel maybe in America, a kid can't raise themselves. Exactly. That's, that's so true. You know, the kids sometimes feel really isolated, but where, you know, in the Philippines, they're like an extended clan, especially like there's not just nuclear families. Sometimes you live with your grandparents, things like that. And it's so healthy just being around people that you can be 
kid and enjoy your childhood and to have all that love and support around you. And tell us a little bit about your upbringing in, in Cebu and how that influences your imagination today. Yeah, so I was raised by a single mother who um, I love dearly. I er learned early on from a young age, maybe I was, when I was four, one of my earliest memories was when my mom took me to this movie theater in downtown Cebu. And I was just, you know, the, the movie itself is really not that memorable. It's a comedy starring the Filipino Charlie Chaplin. But I was so enamored and just dazzled by the massive images projected on the screen. And I, that started my love affair with images, you know, and, and cinema. And shortly after that, I realized that I was imagining or coming up with, you know, scenes in my mind and that I wanted to be a filmmaker. But then, you know, in the Philippines, a lot of the movies tend to be like studio. At the time that I was growing up, a lot of the mainstream studio films tend to be knockoffs of American uh, blockbuster hits. And so for a while, I kind of, although I wanted to make movies, I thought that having a professional career as a filmmaker is not really that viable. So I pursued other you know, professions or, or careers. I studied psychology. And then my first job out of college was uh, working as an associate brand manager for a hair conditioner brand from multinational companies. So my, my first job was in marketing. But, and then when I came to New York for grad school for business and just being part of the reason why we came to New York was because it was the capital of the independent film scene in, in the U.S. And so that just strengthened and reinforced my love for cinema in between classes, I would sneak out to like the IFC Center or um, Landmark Sunshine and film forums to watch art house and classic films. So that by the time I graduated from business school, within a year, I made my short, first short film. And then I took the plunge after that and made my first dramatic feature. I just wanted to take a brief moment to reflect on this wonderful conversation with Isabel Sandavu. You know, her work and her journey and her story means so much to me personally. You know, representation is so important, especially to those who belong in groups that have been excluded, underrepresented, or misrepresented. You know, Isabel continues to pave the way for Filipinos like myself and other people of color who aspire to enter the industry as an actor and a creative. Through her accomplishments, Isabel continues to bear her gifts and incredible talent to the world by crafting stories that show authentic representations of her community and her own experiences, but also by lending her perspective to stories and experiences and moments that are different from her own. Isabel Sandoval is an inspiration to so many, and to me, she continues to shine as a symbol of possibility. Now, back to the interview. As you might know, like, culturally Filipinos sometimes have expectations then towards what a viable job is or what kind of an honorable yeah. profession is. And so when you were making your way towards filmmaking, did you ever have moments where you were 
questioning or doubting yourself or did you ever face resistance from family or friends and how did you push forward with that? I am very stubborn <laughs> and a very headstrong. So when I set my sights on something, I know like I've been so lucky to in that in kind of my single-minded commitment to pursuing something, they've mostly paid off, especially this one, like, you know, pursuing filmmaking for me was kind of a real gamble. You know, I didn't go to film school, so I do not have a traditional film background. I went about my filmmaking from pure intuition and from learning from the masters. Like essentially my film school was just watching as many classic and foreign films that I loved and developing my own aesthetic and my sensibility mm -hmm. from there. Uh, so I think I was privileged in that there was a match between my passion and my talent and abilities as well. And that, you know, I happened to be quite talented at this thing that I loved. And yeah, and especially making Senorita my first teacher and then Lingua Franca. It's my third feature, but it's my first to be set in produced in the US. Um, and it's my first after my gender transition. I think my collaborators really also just responded to how passionate I was and how clear I was about my vision for the film. That also translated to, I think, a, a truly wonderful and rewarding creative collaboration between among everyone involved. And I'd like to say a quite exquisite, you know, and result in final product with the films that we made. And your relationships with the actors, how do you create that sense of family? You know, I know some directors are more quiet. They don't say very much. <laughs> I don't know what your approach is. <laughs> um, yeah, especially, you know, with, with Banner coming on board as the director of, you know, the sixth episode. And they've worked with other directors before me. I was very cognizant of the fact that these act the actors already had a very, a much longer and a more intimate, a much longer history and more intimate, you know, knowledge about their characters in terms of their motivations and their arcs. And so for me, it was really important to establish trust that as a director, I wasn't just telling them, play this beat or feel this emotion at any given moment. I wanted instead to create a space and, and a room for them to feel completely free and comfortable to be present and to be immediate and to be in the moment as to playing the character, especially with, you know, with the wonderful Sam Worthington, who we mostly know for his iconic action roles, um, say in Avatar. And I think this is such a plum dramatic role for him. I wasn't, you know, telling him what to do, but I allowed him the opportunity to be truly intuitive and to go with his gut, especially in the really pivotal dramatic scenes, which are quite a few, you know, for him in this episode. And I think him knowing that I trusted him and that I knew he could pull it off, that, that he did. And I think that's the kind of just trust and comfort and camaraderie that you want to establish with your actors so that they don't feel 
I mean, the pressure, they feel the pressure inside, but not distracting and distracting pressure. And also that would interfere with their own process. So it's a matter of judiciously, you know, guiding them when they need it and also stepping back to let them do their thing because these are marvelously talented actors that I've had a chance to work with. Yes, it's a beautiful collaboration. And there's a real stillness and a warmth to the loneliness. I, I don't know how you achieve that. I don't know focal lengths or all the technicalities. <laughs> what goes into that? Yeah, I think what I, what I brought to Banner that I did with Lingo Franca is again, she's just allowed the characters to sit with their emotions. I feel like a lot of film and TV edits out these emotional scenes just to make it shorter, like when you hit a dramatic beat and then that's it. But what made it feel more visceral and more real and therefore more affecting is that you are allowing these characters to experience those emotions in real time. And you as an audience are able to sit with them as they go through that process. And I think by slowing that down, that was what made those scenes really land, you know, emotionally. Because you have that confidence, it rests in us, the viewer, and uh, we take it home with us and ask what our faith means to us. When was the last time we connected with those that we loved, really? Uh, or the lies that we tell them to to make them happy and content with the part of us maybe breaking inside. It's very deep on so many levels. So as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think the importance and the, the, the meaning of art in the lives of especially young people is that, and in my case as well, art was a way for me to, to kind of see my own perspective and my own life filtered to a different lens. And it was, it gave me a map in a way, a blueprint by which to lead my life. And that's why it's very important that we portray characters um, with real humanity and complexity and depth, especially when you portray minority characters, because one, you know, that is for a lot of, let's say Americans who are, you know, like Caucasian or cisgender or natural born citizens, sometimes it's really these movies and TV shows are the only opportunity that they have to get to know someone who's not from their background or their community, you know, with that detail or with that specificity. And so I feel a responsibility, especially when I'm portraying minority characters, to make them feel alive, you know, and live and breathe and feel multidimensional. Because that's one way and one concrete way of creating understanding and empathy for our community. And when there's a true, you know, feeling of compassion and kinship for someone who has a different experience and background than your own. I think that's the important role of, of cinema because cinema is a gesture 
of empathetic imaginations. And it's, you know, it gives us an opportunity to see the world from another person's eyes. Oh. Thank you, Isabel Sandoval, for inviting us into your multidimensional visual world for the depth of your imagination and compassionate camera work that lets us examine and question our spiritual paths and for telling important stories about our time, which help us understand the world as it is and how it might be. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mian, and it's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Andy Lopez with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer in this podcast was Andy Lopez. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.